Thanks for listening to this audio resource from Sovereign Hope Church. If these resources have been a blessing to you, we would be honored if you would consider making a donation to our church building fund. To learn more about this unique challenge ahead of us and to partner with us for a gospel legacy in Missoula, please visit achurchbuilding.com. That's achurchbuilding.com. Uh, my name's Tyler. I'm one of the pastors here at Sovereign Hope. It's good to be back with you guys today. You guys uh, let me and my family escape last weekend, um, and we were able to get some time off. We were able to also visit uh, a church you guys can be praying for. It's a church plant in our association, CB Northwest in Coeur d'Alene, named Revelation Church, and so it's a blessing to be able to spend the Lord's Day with them last week, and I know you guys were richly blessed by hearing um, from Matt. Uh, so let me just pray before we dive into our text once more today. Uh, Lord Jesus, when it comes to uh, the need to understand your gospel and the need to apply your gospel, we know we are in need of much grace and much mercy. So we ask that you be gracious and merciful to us today as your church, that you would work in our hearts through your word and your Holy Spirit as you seem fit. We pray this in your name. Amen. Amen. If you had to think of what might the most visible way in which you practice evangelism in your life be, what is it? If you had to think of what portion of your life might be the greatest encouragement to the church, to this, what would it be? If you had to think of what part of your life is best suited to proclaim Christ to an increasingly secular world, what would it be? When writing to our church today, Uh, Paul, in writing to a church thousands of years ago in Ephesus, he answers all of those questions the same way. Your relationships. Paul is saying that Christian relationships should be distinct and a witness in every aspect of our culture. And Paul is actually transitioning into this idea of looking at our relationships in the closing part of this book. And I want you to hear this transition that he made as we reach back to what we looked at last time we were here in Ephesians 5, verses 15 through 21. If you don't have a Bible, you could grab one at the back when you leave. Please take that. We want you to have a Bible. This is what Paul says. Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise but as wise, making the best use of the time because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another, so here we're talking about relationships, in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. And so you here see Paul's transitional argument. He says the days are evil. We look out and we know that in our society. And so he says, walk not as foolish, but as wise. Be filled with the Spirit. We like those. Those sound Christian. But what does that look like? Well, Paul helps us. He says, encourage one another. Address one another. Speak to one another. Be grateful for one another. And then lastly, he says... Be submitted to one another out of reverence for Christ. We often say in the church here that the greatest goal of believers is twofold, to glorify God and to love other people. But what does that look like? What does it look like to glorify God as we love other people? In other words, what is it that makes Christian relationships distinct? So distinct that Paul is putting them up in contrast to a secular world. And it's this question of distinction that Paul is going to answer in the next three times we're together in the book of Ephesians. In these three times together, he's going to address husbands and wives, parents and children, and employees and employers. And Paul's point is that Christians and that churches should understand the influence that God has given you already inside of the relationships that God has put you in. And over the next few weeks, you're going to see a similar pattern in each three of these sections. Paul is first going to start by speaking to the one who is under authority, and then he's going to turn and speak to the one who is in authority. But in all three messages, the tone which we just saw in verse 21 will be applied, that ultimately everyone is under submission to Jesus Christ, meaning submission is universal towards God as a Christian. We are submitted to God through Jesus, but 
that submission is distinct depending upon the human context that God has you in at any moment in time. Which means this idea of submission as an act of worship, which is what Paul was getting at in 15 through 21, changes and morphs depending upon who you are and where you are as to how God has placed you in life. Paul will show us at any point in time, you might have various responsibilities in various spheres, and the Bible speaks that. It actually helps us. It tells us how we should act and why we should do it. For instance, there might be a Christian woman who has a distinct responsibility to her husband, which is different than the responsibility she has towards her kids, which might still be altogether different than the responsibility she has as a manager of employees. Or even more, a Christian husband might have a relationship and responsibility to his wife, which is distinct in responsibility that he has to his boss at work. Where you are and who you are changes the responsibilities you might have. And over the past two weeks, the responsibility of my wife and I has been to attend. Today is the fifth wedding in two weeks. And so we are ready to finish this season. But it also means that we're prepped and ready to talk about marriage, which is the first point of distinction that Paul is going to address in this section of Ephesians. And here's what we're going to see in marriage today and looking at husbands as wives are these two points. The first point is that wives sacrificially submit to another, and that is coupled by the completed half of the picture that husbands sacrificially love another. And before we dive into this text, I'm going to extend this already long intro because I know you guys love it when I do that. And so uh, it's important because as we look at these three sections in the marriage, in the home, and in society, there are going to be things that Paul is talking about that are countercultural on just about every level. But none of them are as countercultural or as resisted in today's society as a biblical view of marriage. And in thinking of this, I'm reminded of a story in 2 Kings chapter 5 of a man named Naaman. And Naaman was a commander, a successful commander in the army of Syria, which was the army opposed to Israel, opposed to God's people. And actually it had been um, over the course of his military battles that he had actually taken a Hebrew girl, an Israelite, as a servant. He had made her a slave. But despite all of his success and despite all of his conquests, Naaman had leprosy which is a horribly debilitating disease. You were contagious. You were treated as an outsider. It was painful, and it was nasty. And his servant girl, this Israelite, sees this Syrian army commander and says, Master, if you would just go to the prophet in Israel, he would heal you. And sure enough, Naaman goes to this prophet whose name is Elisha. And so he goes to the prophet of Israel, Elisha, and Elisha looks at Naaman, looks at his disease, says, yep, turns out you have leprosy. Go to the Jordan River, it's a river that flows through Israel, and wash in it seven times, and you will be clean. Interestingly enough, Naaman is irate at this. He is so upset, and he storms away, and his servants come, and they're like, Master, what's, what's going on? And he says, here, I went to this prophet. You told me to go to the special prophet, dude. I thought he was going to wave his special prophet wand over my skin, and my skin was going to be healed. But the nerve of this Israelite tells me to go to this nasty brown river in the middle of Israel and wash seven times. Does he not know the rivers of Syria? How much more wonderful and pure and clean they are? Our rivers are so much better than all the rivers in Israel. And the Bible says he went away furious. But his servants came to him and they said, Master, didn't you hear what the prophet said? He said, wash and you will be clean. That's a good message. Isn't that what you wanted? This is what you wanted all along. Why not give it a shot? So Naaman gives in. He travels to Israel, goes to the Jordan River, and bathes in it seven times. And sure enough, his skin is made as fresh and clean as the skin of a child. Naaman got what he wanted. And immediately, even more miraculously, not only was his skin healed, but his heart was healed. He says, now I know that there is no God except the God of Israel. What does this story have to do with marriage? Your marriage is like leprosy. Just kidding. (laughs) Just making sure you're paying attention. What it means is that you probably heard, even in the scripture reading that Paul was offering, that there are words, ideas, and commands in this text concerning husbands and wives that are easily offensive to culture, and maybe even to you. And it's easy in those instances to long for the rivers of Syria, rivers that make sense, rivers that are popular to understand, 
Rivers that seem easier to bathe in than the one that's foreign and distant. But there's a difference. As countercultural as all three of these things will sound as we get to the end, this is the water that heals. This is the word that actually does work in our lives. This is the place where we encounter God in such a way where we get everything we want, namely a clear vision of the God who lies behind everything. And so I pray as we're walking through this that we submit ourselves to the water that really heals And you see, this is important for us to come under submission to God's word because culture has redefined, reimagined, and refurbished marriage according to its own understanding. No more than in the history of America than even in the last decade. And yet it is God who created us male and female. And it was God who designed marriage and put it into place with that first male and female. And turns out when Genesis 1 is on your resume, you have a lot of authority. When you create, you have the authorial say. And so God gets to define marriage because God designed marriage. And because he designed marriage, there in the heart of this human relationship between a man and a woman is actually the very heart of the gospel itself. Which is to say this. If you are a married person in here today, pay attention Because the gospel is at the heart of your marriage. Which means if you want to understand your marriage, regardless of who you are, where you are, your background with the church, if you want to understand your marriage, you must understand the gospel. And to you people who are single or widowed in here, pay attention. Because marriage is at the heart of the gospel. You can't understand the gospel without understanding this marriage. It doesn't mean you have to experience this kind of marriage, but it means you must experience and know a greater marriage. With that said, let's dive in to Paul's opening words to wives in Ephesians 5, through 24. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. So here we see the first point given to wives today, and that is that wives are called to sacrificially submit to another. To sacrificially submit to another. And before we get going and looking at this text, we're going to look at the first three kind of clauses that Paul uses that helps frame everything he's going to talk about. Right off the bat, he says three things that are really important. Wives, submit to your own husband as to the Lord. So we're going to look at those really quickly and see what those mean. First, Paul opens, wives, submit. And he borrows that word, word submit, from verse 21, which precedes it. And the word he's using in Greek means very strictly and very literally to come under the authority to be submitted to someone or something else. Meaning, I want you to hear this, that this is a statement of order and of structure, but not of value and of worth. Order and structure is being prescribed in Scripture apart from an understanding of value and worth. And this is really important to understand because in our culture today, we have flattened everything to where everything we do and everything we participate in communicates the merit of our own value. In other words, we've flattened what you do, your occupation, and your role, and we've equated it to if you are valuable or if you have dignity. While we would never say it, We judge the personhood, think of that word, we judge the personhood of a cashier as perhaps less valuable than the personhood of a doctor. We wouldn't say it, but it's naturally true. We see broadly and heartbreakingly in culture that the personhood of a child outside the womb is judged differently than a personhood inside the womb based off of its value and its role and utility inside of society, but in God's wonderful creation, role is not equal to dignity. To be in submission to something is not to be any less valuable or any less capable than anyone else. And we know this because Paul made this a universal principle in verse 21, submitting to one another out of reverence to Christ. But we also see that Jesus himself 
submitted to his father while he was on earth. Children in, in obeying their parents, wives and submitting to their husbands, employers and listening to their em, or employees and listening to their employers are no less valuable, dignified, or image-bearing than Jesus was when he obeyed his heavenly father when he was on earth. So it's not speaking to your value. But that word submission, that ordering of your life under someone or something else is a heart posture which demands obedience, sacrifice, and respect. And wives, if you think this is burdensome, wait until you see what Paul's going to ask the husbands to do in a little bit. Because the truth is, when we look at the whole concept of marriage, it is unequivocally and equally costly to both parties in obedience to Jesus. As Paul says, wives, submit. But then he clarifies, to who? To your own husbands. The Bible doesn't call all women to submit to all men in all places. The Bible is calling a single individual wife to submit to her single individual husband. Right, Paul? Single husband, single wives. He's calling them to do that willingly, intentionally, to your husband, to your spouse. Who you marry matters. There are few things, to you single people who are in here, there are few things more influential and important to consider than that it is to whom you will marry. Do you have those high-level thoughts? But this matters. The Bible is calling you to joyfully, willingly, intentionally come under your own husband. And lastly, Paul says, he says that all of this, all of this beautiful work, this beautiful structure that God has given is actually an overflow of your worship. Wives, submit to your husbands, to your own husbands, Paul says, if you look in verse 22, as to the Lord. You see, your understanding, ladies, potential wives, wives, your understanding of God and your worship of him is the fountainhead out of which the whole of your married life flows. It is impossible for us to look at any of the relational postures for husbands, for wives, for parents, for children, for employees and employers, and we cannot do any of those things if our hearts are not first and foremost submitted to God in worship. We can't, as males or females, do any of this without God's help. But God has promised to help us because he is a helping God. He is a good God. And because your submission to your husband is an overflow of your worship to God, that means, husbands, that you cannot go home as a point of application and muster gospel submission out of your wives. That's not how it works. That's not the proper application of this text. Gospel submission is not driven by fear and applied by a husband. Instead, it is fostered in the home through gospel-centered worship. So husbands, in hearing this, the costlier call is on you to lead your wife with a compelling, joyful picture of a gospel-centered marriage, which is immediately what Paul now begins to do to you wives. He holds up this wonderful truth of the gospel as the basis of how it is we interact with one another. Look again at verses 23 and 24 and note this gospel language that shows up here. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ, that's Jesus, is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. So if you're a Bible-loving wife, we look at this, we see God's word, it's clear, it's repeated, but what does it look like? Probably an important question you'll ask yourself one day is, what does gospel submission look like in the context of marriage? And it might seem really unfortunate that Paul's not going to tell you. In fact, Paul's going to give much more time in describing what the husband's love looks like than he will in describing in this text what the wife's submission looks like. But Paul has really spent the last three chapters telling you what it looks like, hasn't he? Because the allegory he's using is wives like the church to Christ. And he spent the last three chapters showing how wonderful Jesus' affection is for his church. And he says, church, this now is how you respond to that love. This is how you live for that husband. This is how you treasure his glory. This is where you encounter his joy. 
Paul has painted so vividly and so clearly what the life of the church looks like. And it's defined like this. If you were to read through and summarize what started in chapter 4 and what has continued up to this, is that the church uses all of her gifts to joyfully and willingly labor for the eternal plan of God in Jesus Christ. That's what we want to do with Sovereign Hope. To joyfully and willingly labor for the eternal plans of God in Jesus Christ. The church is called to willingly set aside her corporate and individual aspirations and instead to joyfully embrace the aspiration of God's glory in all things. Now stop here for a second and hear this. This is for you, church. Whether you are male or female, married or not, this is what the conversion of Jesus has done in your heart. That you would lay aside everything and say, that's what I want. This is what makes sense of all of my life. This is not coerced. This is not oppressive. This is the joy set before me. Paul spent three chapters showing that to us. And now he says, hey, remember that? Just like that, wives, look to your husbands as to the head. And have the posture of wherever you say, wherever you lead, I'm in. That's where I want to go. This was, uh, for instance, when I started dating my wife, uh, Sarah, two things were really clear. One, she wanted to live in San Diego, and two, she didn't want to marry a pastor. So that was unfortunate for me. (laughs) Because I was in Montana pursuing pastoral ministry. And yet without me saying anything, Without me taking her and going here to this text, God did something amazing in her heart. God so labored in her heart that she knew that to love me was to go all in on me pursuing pastoral ministry in the context that God had currently placed us. She supported me. This incurred the cost of immediately out of the gate having a husband that's involved in seminary and traveling to and from Portland in the early stages of our parenting, in the early stages of our marriage. And it was costly for her. And yet it was easy for her. Because it was driven out of a love she had for me. And out of an understanding that this is what God is calling her to in this season. Not just in love for her husband, but for the overall glory of God. Now this kind of posture, which is more what Paul is giving, is a posture than a checklist. This kind of posture does not mean that wives can't share concerns with their husband. How do we know this? Because Jesus, in submission to the Father, on the eve before the cross, pleaded with his Father. He shared his concerns with God. And so wives, speak when there are concerns. Speak willingly. Husbands, this doesn't mean that you don't get to not listen. This doesn't mean that you don't have to listen to your wife. I think I said that right. This doesn't mean that you have a free pass to not listen because you're the head and the wife doesn't have a say. How do we know that? God listens to us all the time, doesn't he? When we look at how Jesus interacted with his disciples, what is remarkably uncanny is how Jesus knows the needs of the disciples before the disciples know their needs. Husbands, a call to love your wife is not just to lead like Jesus, it's also to listen like Jesus, to be aware of the needs that your spouse has and to lay down your life. We'll come back to that in a minute. It also doesn't mean that Uh, husbands are innately more capable or skilled or gifted than their wives. My wife is far more gifted at many things than me. And that's good that God has done that. But it does mean that God in his wisdom has placed the husband in such a position where the responsibility to lead, love, and cherish falls uniquely on him. Now, I want to be helpful practically in this section to those wives or to potential wives who are in here. But I also know that Paul didn't leave a detailed list as to what this looks like. And if all we look at is this idea that submitting is in everything to the husband with respect, which we see in verse 33, it's really more of an art than a science. It's something you need God's help to figure out. It's something that there are postures of submission and everything with respect that, that talking to your husband and praying and talking to the wives who are around you will be helpful. But I do have some diagnostic questions for you at this point. First, what is your definition of happiness? What is your definition of happiness? Paul's gone out of his way to show that our greatest happiness comes in living for the glory of God, which will be displayed at the end of all things. 
if your understanding of happiness as a wife, and this is true for anybody, if your understanding of happiness as a wife is anything less than that, calls to set aside your desire will always seem terrifying to you. But no one sacrifices happiness to pursue Jesus. That's what we just saw in Megan's testimony, wasn't it? What a beautiful story. That it's only gain. It's only gain. Second, just as husbands are called to consider, to scheme costly acts of love towards their wives, wives, what are some costly acts of submission which God might be calling you to make? Where is it that God might be calling you to serve his glory and your husband in loving new ways? Now, before we move on, I want to speak really briefly to believing wives with unbelieving husbands. And I want to say, first of all, that God has not forgotten you. You might see all that God is going to say when we see the whole picture of what a husband and a wife is supposed to look like in relationship. You might see that and say, I see how beautiful that would be if my husband loved me like that. I see how between a believing husband and a believing wife that this is always and only for my good, but that can't be true in my instance. But the truth is, no husband, believer or not, can meet this ideal of love perfectly or personally. There is no husband who at face value is worthy of this kind of service and submission except for Jesus. And Jesus is with you in that relationship. Jesus has not and will not leave you as the faithful husband so that you might love your imperfect one. Now, wives, there's distinctions. You're not called to submit to your husband if he's calling you to sin, if he wants you to be an accomplice in your sin, or if he wants to use you as a tool for sin. Paul makes that clear when he talks about governments, that that's completely out of place for anyone under authority. We obey God, not man, when it comes to issues of what is sinful and what is not. But in circumstances, like living with a non-believing husband, where you're not being asked to sin, God is actually calling you to trust him, to trust God. In times where the wisdom of your husband might be suspect, God is asking you to trust in his infinite wisdom. See, the truth is, for both husbands and for wives, we don't ever act in submission or in costly love because we trust innately our spouse. Our spouses will fail us. When we act in submission or when we sacrifice in love, we're trusting the God who stands behind our spouses. It's only when you see that is any of this ever bearable. Is any of this ever actionable in our heart? And you'll see in this body, I know there are men who in marriage had wives who were converted ahead of them and whose costly, sacrificial submission, love, and kindness worked to woo their hearts to the gospel. And that's exactly why Paul is treasuring the importance of relationships. That's what godly relationships should work, is a wonder and amazement with the gospel. Now, if left on its own or if left in the context of an unbelieving spouse, this is a difficult concept to understand, but God still gives us the help to do it. But to see the full beauty of it, we now need to turn to the other half of the equation, which is the call to husbands. Husbands, this is how Paul speaks to you. In the first part of verses 25 through 31. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of the water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we're members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So here we see the complementary picture of marriage. We zoom out and we see even how beautiful the whole is. God designed it. That's why relationships matter. Is ideally, God designed these to be beautiful. Sin complicates that. It doesn't kill it, but it complicates it. But here we see that wives are called to lay down their authority in submission, and husbands are called to lay down their lives in love. 
This is our second point today, is that husbands sacrificially love another. Husbands sacrificially love another. Now also, this helps us have greater clarity on what submission means, doesn't it? Because we just saw what the receiving end looks like. Submission is not pandering to the superficial wants and desires of the husband. Why not? Because a godly husband is more concerned in loving his wife sacrificially than he is about his own surface needs. And this is really important to understand with how our culture talks about love. Because what's actually happened in our culture is that relationships in pursuit of happiness have actually bound people to fear. Meaning, we are so fixated on relationships satisfying you as an individual, of you being happy in it, that we have taken a good thing, that you should love and enjoy the person you're with, and we've made it an ultimate thing. So that if that person, if that spouse ever fails to make you happy, ever fails to satisfy you, ever fails to provide for you what you think nourishes your life, you move on. And you find somebody who can. It's about you. And what that does, when that becomes ultimate, is it actually captivates the beloved in fear. Fear that if they ever cause you displeasure, they have thrown away the ability to be loved. That is not gospel love. And here we see what a truer picture of love that God holds up in these two pictures in Ephesians chapter 5. The loving wife gives her life in joyful submission to someone who is not herself. And the godly husband lays aside his own benefit for the eternal benefit of his beloved. And each of them find joy immensely. This is not joy that enslaves with fear, but it's joy that gives the gospel. And this really is a truer picture of love. Isn't this how you would like to be loved? Wouldn't you like that burden lifted from your shoulders that one wrong move disqualifies you from the love that you seek? It's not a love that derives from merit as if you could earn it, but instead it's a love that says, I love you, and I'm going to continue to love you even when it's hard. Notice the point Paul makes here when it comes to belonging and this unity that's in this text. Paul says, the wife does not belong to the husband as property to be consumed as he sees fit. Instead, the the wife belongs to the husband as his own body. That's a big difference, isn't it? We treat our bodies differently than we treat our property. And God says, husbands, your wife is your body to be treated, not only how you would like to be treated, but how I, as the great father of all, demand you treat it. Which means, church, that it is no biblical view of marriage which sees a wife's submission as a tool to be weaponized for your own pleasure or utility. We are in a crisis of Western evangelicalism where God is working across our country almost daily to bring to light in churches and institutions men who have used these very verses to sin against women in harmful ways. And God must continue this revealing work. We should pray that it happens both for the perpetrators and for the victims. But I want to make clear here what Paul is making clear. The problem behind this crisis is not too much headship. It's too little headship. When these verses are being used to harm or to oppress, it's not because men are too strong or too firm or that they lead too much. It's they do all so little in those categories. No one led stronger than Jesus led, and it was not detrimental to his bride, the church. You cannot out-headship Jesus, but you can settle for a headship which is less than Jesus, and that is always, in any circumstance, dangerous. Jesus' light always hurts people, but Jesus, when understood fully, is always a blessing. How do we know that this will be a blessing for us? Because the gospel leadership of Jesus is at the very heart of how we were loved. We know the goodness of it. We know the benefit of Jesus' loving servanthood, his leadership, his headship towards us. 
One of my favorite albums that I listened to in high school was uh, a Led Zeppelin concert that happened in L.A. in, I think, 1972. It was a three-part disc thing called How the West Was Won. And on the second disc, the final track is called Moby Dick. And in this song, the song starts just like the recorded version and it ends just like the recorded version. But in the middle, their drummer, John Henry Bonham, uh, that's how they say it, uh, he goes on this 17-minute drum solo. And I'm not talking about like this jam session where everybody's going and he's drumming, like just drums, 17 minutes. And he just keeps going and he keeps going and he keeps going. And you're like, you get to a point where like, man, he's really skilled at this, but I forgot where we're at. Like, where do we start? Where is this going to end? And you're like, this can't possibly be going anywhere. And then seamlessly, all of a sudden, the band comes in right on cue and he finishes the song perfectly. And in that moment, you realize that everything you just listened to, all of those fills and all of those symbols and all of those, those drummy things, <laughs> they were always there in the song. They were always there. You just needed the context to see it. And this is exactly what Paul is now beginning to do in the book of Ephesians. This text is undoubtedly about marriage. But there is a degree, if you were to ask me, where I actually think this text is the very center of Paul's entire book. This text resolves the tension of Ephesians as a whole. And then it returns to marriage. And so what I want to do is I want us to read through this text again, and I want you to see how clearly it starts, how clearly it ends. But I want you to hear the solo of the gospel, this weighty, immense depth that was in this text all along. So listen with me, with new ears, if you would, beginning in verse 25. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of the water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish." In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes it and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to the wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I'm saying it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Did you hear the melody in there? Because what we really see in this text, when we zoom out, when we look at this text through this lens, what we really see is how profoundly Jesus loves the church. Before Paul ever returns to marriage, he wants us to first see how richly the gospel dwells inside of it. And do you remember all the things that Paul has been calling us as Christians to do starting in chapter 4? Just listen to this. Beginning in chapter 4, Paul says, Walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. Later he says, Don't walk as you used to when you weren't saved in the futility of your mind. He goes on, Put off your old self. Put off your old way of thinking, which belongs to the former manner and is corrupt through deceitful desires. Instead, put on the new self created in the likeness of true holiness. That's 4 verse 24. Then he goes on to say this. He says, Instead, speak truth to each other. Build up one another. Do not be bitter to one another. Imitate God. Give up sexual impurity. Give up slander. Give up drunkenness. Give up lewd talk. Expose the sin that kills Come into the light of Jesus, seek peace with everyone, be thankful in everything, glorify God, submit to one another out of fear of Jesus Christ, and just as if it wasn't hard enough, he says, wives serve like the church, husbands love like Jesus. Any sensible person looks at what has been demanded, and we are crushed. And maybe that's you today. Maybe when looking at all of the commands that Jesus gives us and looking at all of the sin we know dwells in our heart, we want to throw up our hands and say, I'm done. 
I'm done with the guilt. I'm done with the failure. I'm done with the pain. I'm done with the sorrow. I'm done with not matching up. I'm done with being how I've always been. I'm done. But look at how this Savior, Jesus Christ, loves you. Look at this redeeming Savior husband. Look at what he's done for you in this text. Put aside, punt husbands and wives for a moment and take this as a believer. Jesus has come from heaven to earth for you. He has endured the cross where he died for your sins. He has given his life and withheld nothing for his church. He has promised not to leave you in your filth that you still feel. He has promised not to look away in hope that boot camp fixes you. He has not shut the door on the bathroom hoping you come out beautiful. Instead, he has approached you with washcloth in hand and he has begun to wash you. He has begun to cleanse you. He has begun to fill you daily with his spirit so that one day, did you hear that? In all of your failures, that one day, one beautiful, glorious, lovely day, everything that Jesus sees in you will be met perfectly, holy, without blemish, radiant, in glory, perfect. Do you realize Jesus will do that for you? This husband loves you this much. What a husband. Man, there are days where I long for this. Where I look in the mirror and I see my filth and I work and I strive and it feels helpless. But here is my husband's savior. And he says, look at what will be. Look at what will be. This is the water that heals. Come to this husband. Be wed to him in faith and realize that everything you've ever wanted is in the river of Jordan. That culture can have their rivers, but we will take our healing. Just as wives are called to submit to their husbands, even when their husbands are not innately worthy of it, so too are husbands to love their wives, even when their wives are not worthy of it. How and why might we do this? Because this is where our Savior husband found us. We had nothing that was compatible with Jesus or attractive that he might desire us, and yet he did. I ran into a sermon earlier this week from a pastor who lived just a few hundred years after Paul penned this letter to the church in Ephesus. And he was preaching on this very text, and I took it, and it was so beautiful, I tried to put it into my own words, but I couldn't, and partly it's because it's preached by a guy named John Chrysostom, whose name literally means the golden mouth, which also means, Tyler, you can't say it any better. So it's a really long quote, and it's going to be on the screen, but I want you to listen to this beauty. This is it. This is for husbands. This is for wives. But this is the beauty of it. If you must give your life for your wife, yes, even to be cut into pieces 10,000 times, yes, even to endure and undergo any suffering whatsoever, refuse it not. That's a countercultural idea, isn't it? Even if you have done all these things, even then you have not done anything like Christ. For you would do it for the one to whom you are already knit, but he for the one who turned her back on him and hated him. The church was unclean. So then she had blemishes. So then she was unsightly. So then she was worthless. Whatever kind of wife you take, you shall never take a bride such as Christ when he took, the, just such as the church when Christ took her, nor will you take one as removed from you as the church was removed from Christ. Yet in all this, he did not abhor you. He did not loathe her in her surpassing deformity. But do you remember her deformity described? 
Hear what Paul said. For you were once darkness. And what is blacker than darkness? But again, look at her boldness. Living, Paul says, in malice and envy. Look again at her impurity. Disobedient. Foolish. So many were her blemishes. Yet he did, yet did he give himself up for her in her deformity. As for one in the bloom of youth. As one dearly beloved. As for one of wonderful beauty. And it was in this, in admiration of this, that Paul said, in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And though such as this, he took her, he arrayed her in beauty, and washed her, and refused not even this, to give himself to her. Dear believer, do you realize that this is what Jesus has done for you? This is the wedding that saves. This is the wedding which awaits you in eternity. In Genesis, we see a creation and a wedding. And at the end of Revelation, we see new creation and a new wedding. The wedding supper of the Lamb, where this final presentation, a spotless, purified, radiant bride is presented to Jesus. Have you taken that Jesus as your husband? If so, can't we trust his love? Can't we submit ourselves to his word, whether we are husbands or wives or parents or children? Can't we know that he desires only good for us? He says this, marriage refers to Christ in the church. You can't understand the gospel without understanding this marriage. But then the band comes in and he zooms out. He says, just as there's one church and there's one Christ, so you many husbands and you many wives must learn to apply this in your own life. He says in closing, husband, love your wives as himself and let the wife see that she respects her husband. So I have one quick point, if you will, in application to you husbands here at the end. It's been long, it's warm in here, but this is good news for us and so we're gonna sit a little longer. And that is this, husbands. What does your love look like? What does your love look like? You men in here who are unmarried and you think about what it might look like to love a woman, what does it look like? Because it's really easy for us to bend our definition of love into what it's easy for us to do in love, isn't it? We can say it's loving for us to provide enough money for our spouses to have the home they want, and I'm sure your spouse will greatly appreciate that. We can say it's loving, we can do the five love language test, and we can say my wife really desires quality time. Your wife will certainly... Be blessed by that. You can even say that love is being kind and gentle, and she will certainly find great benefit from that. But here Paul describes love, love from which Jesus as the true husband pursued his church, as love that contributes to spiritual growth. You want to know how to put off the fear of too much comfort or familiarity with your wife? Pursue deep spiritual change with her every day. Jesus' love for us wed us to his power and promised to change us. The truth is, guys, you're not Jesus. And some of you probably needed to hear that. You can't change your, your wife, but you can think about what it might look like to love her in a way which cherishes her spiritual state. What would it look like for you to love your wife in such a way that it prioritizes her growth in Christ? Maybe it's praying together each morning. Maybe it's taking, instead of having a date night out, it's having a date night in and you listen to a sermon or you listen to a Christian podcast, you read a book together. Or maybe it's you realizing that God has gifted your wife in special, unique, wonderful ways. And you say, honey, I'm going to take the kids, I'm going to arrange my time so that you could go serve the church, you could go share the gospel with your coworker, you could go spend time in a ladies' Bible study. I want you to have that time and I'm going to incur the cost for it. And husbands, the litmus test for this kind of love can come in the simplest of ways. It's one thing for someone to say they'll die for their wife. I have yet to met a husband who's like, yeah, I probably wouldn't. Everybody says it. (laughs) Because the hypothetical most of us will never have to face. We love the masculine ideal. But if the only way you love your wife is that one day you maybe would take a bullet for her, there's much to be left on the table, isn't there? It's wildly out of sync To look at this passage and think that, yes, you would die for your wife in life, but you wouldn't die for your wife daily. 
In many ways, it's easier to say, I'll die. And it's a lot harder to say, I'll change the diaper. I won't watch the game this weekend. The lawn can wait till tomorrow. Yes, I'd love to go to your mom's house. <laughs> it's my mother-in-law. But where do those little things come into your life as a daily laying down? This kind of gospel love includes the grand, but also the gritty. And that's what leadership is. This is what Jesus is calling you men to foster in your home by grace. And don't forget it. Don't think there's some pill and culture that solves this problem. Jesus is making it clear. It will be costly. How little have I tried to mitigate that cost in my life? How deeply I need Jesus' gospel to cause me to do these things for my wife. But he who loves his wife loves himself. Take joy, men, in the sacrifice. Marriage matters because the gospel matters. And I imagine, as we're going to do corporately in one second, that there's some repentance that needs to happen in all of our hearts. How we view God, how we view our spouses, how we view the institution of marriage. But here's the beautiful truth of what we just read, that it's precisely through this repentance that Jesus continues his washing. It's precisely through our brokenness that reminds us that one day we will be unbroken. We'll be put back together and presented radiant and pure. And these broken steps we have in our marriages and in our church are part of that beautiful process. Jesus is perfecting his bride into a wonderfully distinct witness, and it is our joy to participate in such a redeeming work as this. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, there are few things more applicable in our lives than talking about love, talking about how we love our spouses, how we date our boyfriends or our girlfriends, how we even consider the institution of romance, of marriage. So Lord, we pray that you put ankles around our feet and you sink us deep into the gospel. Lord, I know that in this room there are hundreds of ways in which this text is going to be applied. But Lord, I pray your Holy Spirit gives clarity, confidence, gentleness, wisdom, and grace to all of them. Put our hands to the plow that we might do your work so we might magnify your glory and love other people. We pray this in your name. Amen.